What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Twisted Mirrors Season 2 finale. Please make sure to listen to this intro as there's some important info regarding the show. So, as I mentioned, this is the Season 2 finale. I'll be back in the fall with new episodes. In the meantime, if you want your Twisted Mirror fixed through the summer, check out Twisted Mirror's Patreon. Bonus episodes will be loaded during the break. There's already bonus episodes waiting for you, such as a dreamscape meditation of one of my literal recurring nightmares, behind-the-mirror episodes where I talk about the creation of existing episodes, and true horror stories, such as one related to today's theme called Disaster at Work. And I would like to give a special thank you to the Patreons who have supported Twisted Mirror thus far. Your support makes it possible for this little show to exist. Twisted Mirror is an independent podcast. I write, voice act, and edit the episodes, with the exception of guests. I have a list of hundreds of story ideas, and the only thing limiting me is the time I can devote to crafting these stories. All the money I have raised so far has gone right back into the show, and I hope you have noticed that this season has more consistent sound quality as a result. Each season of Twisted Mirror is like a second full-time job for me. My hope is the show will grow enough so that I can devote more time to writing stories and putting out longer seasons. If you can't do Patreon or a one-time donation via the site, there are plenty of ways to support the show. Share episodes with other lovers of the macabre, Post about it on your socials and chime in about it when people are asking for dark podcasts on Reddit or Facebook. And of course, reviews are critical. It doesn't have to be an essay, you can say me like show for all I care, but the algorithms do pick up on reviews and suggest the show to new listeners, which is worth its weight in gold. You can find all things Twisted Mirror at twistedmirrorpodcast.com, including merch, links to socials, and an email list. The last two are great for getting updates about season three. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app. That way you don't miss me when I come back. Episode 1 of Season 3 is going to be a doozy. As a reminder, I am taking submissions via the website. I haven't gotten a ton, to be honest, but I plan on collecting submitted stories for future episodes, so don't be shy and send them over. All right, that's all the housekeeping I have for now. It has been a pleasure sharing these stories with you. And now on to something far less pleasant. You are now staring into the twisted mirror. In the myth of Pandora's box, Zeus, angered that man had been gifted the power of fire, only previously reserved for the gods, sought out revenge. He created a woman, the lovely Pandora, and gifted her a container. It was strange, though, as she was told that while the container held many gifts, she could never open it. But we humans are a curious bunch, and, unable to resist, Pandora tipped the lid open. Out poured scary and evil things. This story has endured as a symbol of the risks of peeking into the unknown, 
the dangers of seeking knowledge that should perhaps be left a mystery. Pandora, who only wanted to satisfy her curiosity and having no intentions of spreading misery, closed the lid almost as quickly as she had opened it. But it was too late. There was one thing she did manage to retain, however. Hope. Hope is a wonderful thing. It has allowed us to make incredible advances as a species, and has guided many a person through the darkest of times. But hope can sometimes be dangerous, as it can lead us to believe in a delusion, one we cling to to protect ourselves from difficult truths, one that worsens an inevitable outcome. For most of our time on this earth, mankind prayed to gods who we thought controlled the power of the sun. Eventually, like Pandora, our curiosity, our desire to transcend our meager abilities, led us to find ways to harness that power, which had previously only been reserved for gods. But we are merely mortals, and releasing that awesome, divine power, invisible, yet capable of inconceivable devastation and renewal, has irreversible consequences. Like the evils in Pandora's box, we cannot stuff those secrets back inside. All we are left with is hope. But as we have seen since Pandora released those evils into the world, hope isn't always enough. This is true horror, criticality. The morning of September 30th, 1999, started with the usual routine for Hishashi Uchi. The dedicated 35-year-old husband and father woke up at around 6 a.m., and by 6.40 a.m., he had left his family's newly built house to head to his job at the JCO Tokaimura plant in Japan. This would be his first day inside the conversion test building which was being used to process uranium fuel for a reactor. Though this was Uchi's first time in the building, the task seemed simple enough. Uchi first passed the uranium solution through a filter and into a stainless steel bucket. From there, a colleague and their boss would take the solution and pour it into a vat called the precipitation tank, using a large funnel. When Uchi was done filtering the necessary solution, he took over holding the funnel from his boss, who left the room. Uchi's colleague was pouring the seventh bucket when there was an unexpected loud clap and a flash of blue light. A siren rang. From the other room, their boss shouted, Run for your lives! an unexpected criticality event had occurred. Criticality in nuclear physics is the state in which a sustained fission reaction is achieved. In other words, a critical mass is achieved where fission becomes self-sustaining, a chain reaction where each fission produces a neutron that strikes another atom, causing another fission, which in turn triggers another. You get the gist. 
there are a number of factors that can combine to reach a critical mass, the point at which criticality is achieved, such as mass, temperature, even the shape of a container can cause the fissile material to react in such a way as to trigger a criticality. Think of a bunch of neutrons shooting around, bouncing off of surfaces in atoms such as uranium. Take a tiny volume of fissile material and put it in a massive container, and there may be enough space for the neutrons to disperse, keeping reactivity at a subcritical level. Put that same material in a much smaller container, a hotter one or even a differently shaped one, and enough of those neutrons may begin colliding into uranium atoms to trigger a criticality event. This is why at power plants and enrichment facilities, there are very specific procedures when handling or preparing fissile materials. A big change in one procedure, or even a few small changes that seem inconsequential, can have a domino effect which triggers a reaction. Think about the basic chemistry many of us have performed in our homes. Baking. They say cooking is an art and baking is a science. Miscalculating one ingredient, using the wrong temperature, fluctuating humidity levels, or even changing the shape of the pan can cause your finished product to turn out differently than how you had intended. Except we aren't talking about a 1990s sitcom souffle. We're talking about nuclear fission. Now, I'm no rocket scientist, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but I like to understand how and why things happen and I think you might too. So here's a quick explanation of how fission is achieved. A neutron slams into an element, uranium in this case, causing it to split into two. The process produces a tremendous amount of energy. During the split, excess neutrons are produced. Those suckers go flying too, looking to bombard other uranium atoms minding their own business. If those neutrons slam into more uranium, the process repeats. You can see how this can go exponential pretty quickly in the right conditions. That is criticality. Of course, the most infamous example of fission are atomic bombs, such as the two bombs dropped on Uchi's home country during World War II. The awesome power they produce allows for something small enough to be carried on a plane to level an entire city and take hundreds of thousands of lives in an instant. And if the sheer heat and force of the blast doesn't kill you, the radioactive fallout that follows just might. But nuclear energy can also be used for good, to efficiently power entire cities, for example. Certain types of radiation power x-ray machines that help us diagnose hidden illnesses. I don't think I'm revealing anything shocking by saying that these nuclear reactions are supposed to be contained as large amounts of radiation are released. If humans are exposed to a nuclear reaction, those high-energy radioactive particles can slam into the atoms that compose our cells, altering or downright destroying them. When the men pouring the uranium saw that blue flash, also known as a Cherenkov light, a type of glow that can occur during certain types of criticality, Neutron radiation pierced their bodies. Before they could even blink, their fates had already been determined.
Uchi, who was leaning over the container where the criticality was achieved, had the highest exposure, by far. After hearing the cries of their boss instructing them to flee, Uchi ran out of the room, vomited, and passed out for a short period. He was immediately taken to a hospital as government health officials scrambled. The criticality event was not over as those pesky neutrons continued to slam into uranium and the surrounding town had to be evacuated. The criticality continued for 20 hours. Experts from all over Japan were called upon to help save Uchi and his co-workers. Eventually, a Department of Medicine professor and emergency medicine specialist at the University of Tokyo, Dr. Kazuhiko Mayakawa, took on the task of leading Uchi's treatment. A colleague tried to discourage Mayakawa from taking on the case, insisting it was a lost cause. But Mayakawa was determined to provide the best care for his new patient. Since radiation exposure is so rare, there is not much in the literature for doctors regarding how to handle such a patient. By the time the patient has reached the hospital, the direct damage from radiation has already been done. Doctors cannot reverse it. There is no serum to cure the patient. For medical staff, treatments are mostly supportive and meant to address the symptoms of radiation poisoning. Radiation destroys the body on a cellular level. Cells that have high turnover rates, such as blood cells, skin cells, and mucosal tissues, are particularly susceptible. Lower levels of radiation exposure or poisoning, such as the citizens of Chernobyl, for example, may have damage that takes years to present, in the form of blood and stomach cancers or birth defects. But with ultra-high levels of exposure, the deterioration is rapid. Dr. Maikawa and his team were in a race against the clock. Sieverts are a unit of measurement for radiation levels. It was established early on in memos that Uchi had been exposed to over eight sieverts, for which the mortality rate is 100%. But subsequent tests revealed that the actual level for Uchi was 20 sieverts. That's 20,000 times the max exposure a human body can tolerate in an entire year. Based on the numbers, Uchi would die. There was no way around it. But Dr. Meikawa was determined to find a way to save him. The doctor assembled a team of specialists. There would need to be hematologists, dermatologists, and gastroenterologists, and more working on this case. Then there would be a team of nurses handling Ochi's fluids, bandages, and whatever other care he needed around the clock. Maikawa theorized that if he could repair each system in Ochi's body, they could somehow find a way for him to heal. The most immediate threat to Ochi's survival were his blood counts. So the first step was planning an experimental stem cell transplant. Uchi's white blood cell count was astonishingly low, with normal levels of white blood cell counts being 23 to 48%. Uchi's was only 1.9%. If the team could not get his white blood cell count up, particularly his lymphocytes, the white blood cells responsible for fighting pathogens, 
all other efforts would be fruitless as infection would inevitably take him. While they strategized, Uchi was placed in a controlled, sterile environment. Despite the initial symptoms of vomiting, Uchi was calm, cheerful even. Much to Maikawa's astonishment when they first met, he didn't look like someone who had been blasted with 20 sieverts of radiation. Sure, he complained of a little pain by his ear and in his right hand, the areas closest to the funnel and container. And yes, his eyes were a bit bloodshot and his face a little red. But overall, he looked fine. Based on Uchi's condition upon arrival, Maikawa thought that perhaps he could be saved. Uchi's family quickly came to rally by his side. His wife, they were high school sweethearts, visited daily with their son. Nurses noted how whenever his wife had to leave after a visit, he would chide, You're leaving already? He'd make jokes about how embarrassed he was to be wiped down by nurses and how they should call his wife instead. Overall, Uchi wasn't acting like a man who had just been served a death sentence. As days passed and doctors worked behind the scenes, the team now included infectious disease doctors, cell and transplantation therapy, radiology, and other specialists, totaling to 13 departments, the reality of Uchi's situation slowly began to dawn on him. At first playful, and the least worried of the three people closest to the criticality incident, he said to a nurse, I thought I'd be able to leave the hospital in a month or two. But it's going to be a lot longer, isn't it? Uchi started asking about leukemia and his risks of getting it after radiation exposure. But it still seemed that he presumed his risks to be long-term. The radiation sickness coming on slower than expected, along with the hospital and nursing staff's hopeful demeanor, seemed to aid in that. Uchi had no idea that while only mild symptoms followed in the immediate days after the accident, soon he would be facing an onslaught that would put his medical team in unchartered territory. On day six after exposure, the team received micrographs of Uchi's bone marrow cells. What they saw was astonishing. Dr. Maikawa and the team expected to see Uchi's bone marrow cell chromosomes. Instead, what was in front of them were scattered black dots. His chromosomes were out of order. Some fused with others, and others were flat-out unidentifiable. Chromosomes hold the blueprint to your DNA. You get a set from each of your parents, and they contain all the information needed to build you and keep you in good working order by ensuring proper cell replication. Now that Uchi's chromosomes were fully destroyed, he could produce no new healthy cells. In effect, his physical body was already dead. The final correct collection of cells that made Uchi built off of the information contained in his unadulterated chromosomes, were already dying off. It was just a matter of time, waiting for the existing cells in his body to expire until essential functions would stop, and he would reach the end of his death process. But 
Mayakawa was determined to forge ahead. He believed the lack of knowledge regarding how to treat those exposed to enormous doses of radiation could be a good thing. Perhaps there were treatments that could work that the medical community just had never had a chance to try. On day seven after radiation, Uchi's younger sister, a match for transplantation, donated her blood, begging the staff to take as much as they needed to save her brother. She sat for four hours and 35 minutes as they extracted the stem cells from her blood. Shortly thereafter, the cells were transplanted to her brother. Now they could only wait to see if they would take root. The family set up residence in a hotel across the street, taking overnight shifts in the hospital waiting room. Every day, they received updates from Dr. Mayakawa together. They listened attentively and seemed to have complete trust in the doctor. They agreed with him that they should try everything they could to save their beloved Hishashi. On day 11 after exposure, Uchi's demeanor had begun to shift. Normally good-humored, even when he hinted at signs of concern or doubt, he had started to show increasing fatigue. With 13 departments monitoring every conceivable system in his body, he was continually being prodded with needles, sometimes directly into his bones. Tissue samples were extracted from his face, body, and throat to monitor for infections. Photos were taken to monitor his condition. He was also receiving X-ray and CT scans. Yes, that is more radiation, but I suppose at that point they had no other choice. Uchi would remark that he was tired and wanted to sleep. But demonstrating his kind nature would follow up by saying that he understood everyone was trying their best to help him, and that he should keep trying his best too. At around this time, he started to complain of chronic thirst. His skin also started to show classic signs of radiation exposure. At first red and inflamed, by this time, whenever medical tape was used and pulled off, his skin would come with it. The exposed skin left behind could not heal. Shortly after this development, the use of medical tape on Uchi was no longer permitted. If you think of neutron beams like a shotgun blast, areas closest to the criticality receive the most concentrated doses of radiation, and they disperse greatly within a short distance, so that the damage to areas closest to the container holding the uranium were significantly greater than even parts on his body that were just a few inches farther. Blisters began to appear on his right hand as it had received the most radiation, along with his upper right torso, due to its proximity to the container. Those areas would see the skin symptoms first, but eventually, they would spread to much of his body, so that if his feet were rubbed with a towel, the skin would slough off. Since no new skin cells could be produced, eventually most of his epidermis would wear off, leaving him in tremendous pain and also at increased risk for infection. Around this time, Uchi's breathing began to deteriorate. X-rays showed a black shadow on his right lung, the lung closest to the criticality event. 
the medical team faced a tremendous challenge in diagnosing the shadow. They believed he might have fluid in his lungs from leaking blood vessels. Typically, a pleural puncture could be done to relieve the lungs of fluid. But this was risky as he could no longer heal and any deep puncture was another avenue for potential infection. After much deliberation, however, the doctors decided they had to move forward with the puncture to improve his breathing. A mask was sealed tightly on Uchi's face in order to release pressure so that his lungs could expand to take in more oxygen. The seal on the raw skin of his face was agonizing. And finally, the man referred to by the nursing staff as Cheerful Uchi had reached a breaking point. He cried for his mother, begged to go back home. He told them he couldn't take it anymore, begged them to stop. He cried, don't leave me alone. The nurses encouraged him, begging him to hold on for just a few more minutes. They reminded him of his wife who wanted him to get better. I am not a guinea pig, he shouted. Despite the grueling ordeal, his breathing continued to struggle. The lack of oxygen made him delirious at times. He began to utter nonsense. The staff had to consider a breathing tube, but they knew once they did, he would no longer be able to speak to them or his family. The day before the tube was inserted and Uchi would no longer be able to speak, a nurse witnessed him affectionately call his wife by her nickname. I love you, he said. Despite the steep decline in his condition, Maikawa thought the tube might be a temporary measure. He hoped to get Uchi's lungs under control and that there would come a day the tube could be removed. Of course, Uchi would never see that day, and he would never speak again. Even with the breathing tube, he was still conscious and could communicate. For example, when asked if he was in pain, he would nod. Yes. His devoted family continued to stand in vigil in a specially appointed waiting room in the hospital. Bright furnishings were added by Dr. Mayakawa's request to make the space appear more cheery. As the family waited for updates from Maikawa, they folded paper cranes, a symbol of peace, hope, and longevity. On day 17, after the criticality, there was finally a speck of hope. Uchi's white blood cell count had never stopped its rapid descent and had gotten as low as 150th to 180th of a healthy person's. But on this day, his blood test showed the first increase since the day he was irradiated. Within 24 hours, his white blood cell count had gone from 300 to 1,000 per cubic millimeter. The team hoped this meant that his sister's stem cells had taken root. They extracted bone marrow and tested the chromosomes. Male chromosomes are XY, females are XX. The sex cells in Uchi's chromosomes were XX, 
meaning his sister's stem cells had taken hold. After weeks of his uncontrollable decline, it felt like this might be a victory. When tested further, it was shown that he definitely had young, newly formed white blood cells, which could only come from his sister's stem cells. His count continued to rise up to 8,000, then 10,000. His red blood cells and platelets essential for clotting also began to rise. Maikawa thought perhaps they had done it. If Uchi's blood could recover, his risk of infection and bleeding would decrease. This could be the first step in rebuilding him. But they were nowhere near a full recovery. He was still in excruciating pain, as demonstrated by his constant squirming in bed. There were also many other systems in his body that needed addressing. But the sense that they had won a small battle against radiation would be dashed when nine days later, more detailed results came back from his bone marrow tests. The results seemed impossible. 10% of the transplanted stem cells, his sister's cells, had chromosomal abnormalities. It didn't make sense. These were not his cells, but brand new cells from his sister, which had never been exposed to a criticality. Yet they had damage as if they had been irradiated. They weren't sure why, but there were theories. One was that certain compounds in his body, such as sodium, phosphorus, and potassium, were changed on a molecular level when the neutron beams pierced his body, making them radioactive themselves and thus damaging even the newly formed cells in his body. The other theory was something called the bystander effect in which irradiated cells release free radicals, damaging nearby healthy cells. Whatever the cause, this was not good news. It meant that his blood would not get a completely fresh start, and that his exposure to radiation had effects beyond the instantaneous damage it did to his system at the time of criticality. Maikawa's hope was essentially to replace or rebuild the various system in Uchi's body that had been decimated. As impossible as it sounded, the stem cells taking root proved it was on some level possible. But now, it was clear. The damage persisted. The other system most susceptible to radiation damage is that of the intestines. Lined with mucosal cells that turn over at a high rate, they expected to see inflammation and bleeding, perhaps even find he had no mucosal layer left and thus would be unable to absorb nutrients. It was hard to administer the endoscopy as his intestines were tense and contracted violently. Even a small puncture from the device could kill him. To their surprise, even 16 days after irradiation, Despite the fact that most of his skin had fallen off of his body, his mucosal layer was still present, albeit irritated. Though they had been feeding him through a tube in his neck which fed directly to his heart, they needed to maintain his strength, and a drip was not enough. So they placed a feeding tube through his nose and down to his stomach, 
with his intestinal mucosal layer still intact, they believe that meant he should still be able to absorb the nutrition. But hours later, he passed green, watery mucus in place of healthy stool. The feeding attempt was a failure. Twenty days after the incident, Uchi was moved to a bed designed to rotate his body so that fluids would not settle in his lungs and so that pressure could be alleviated from certain parts of his body, especially seeing as his skin was so fragile and burnt. At this point, Uchi was often sedated on cocktails of painkillers and pumped full of drugs to help his bodily systems function. 27 days after the criticality, Uchi had his first severe diarrhea attack since he had first come to the hospital. This was yet another terrible development. Even a healthy person can die quickly from uncontrolled diarrhea. The doctors feared what this meant, that finally his intestinal lining had deteriorated. Their hunch was right. The mucosal layer had finally gone, and overall the intestines looked red and unhealthy. Surprisingly, they weren't sure if this was directly due to radiation or graft-versus-host disease, a phenomenon in which transplanted white blood cells end up turning on their hosts. Ultimately, the tests to find out which were too risky, and they could only guess. Then myoglobin began to flood Uchi's blood. This happens when muscle tissue is damaged. Uchi's muscle tissue was disintegrating. Small amounts of myoglobin are filtered through the kidney, but large amounts lead to renal failure. And of course, tests began to show a decline in his kidneys. As if playing a medical game of whack-a-mole, while this was all happening, there was still the issue of his skin. His body was mostly raw and covered in blisters. Most of the epidermis that covered his body when he arrived at the hospital had completed its life cycle with no new cells to replace them. In order to protect him from infection, his entire body, from head to toe, was covered in a special gauze that had a smooth surface for his delicate skin. Even his fingers were individually bandaged so that they would not fuse. Each day, medical staff would remove the dressings, rinse his body with an antiseptic wash, apply ointment to his bandages, and wrap him up. Despite the painkillers, it was no doubt a painful experience. This routine took two to three hours. His nails also fell off. Uchi's eyelids would no longer shut, and a special ointment had to be applied to keep them from drying out. Sometimes blood seeped from his eyes. We tend to take our skin, the largest organ of the human body, for granted. It's durable, handling nicks and cuts regularly, repairing itself like magic. It is our first line of defense from the world around us, shielding us from the sun's rays blocking out billions of pathogens that would love to host themselves inside of us. It also contains all the things we want to keep inside, like fluids. Without our skin, 
we're pretty much just a vulnerable wet pile of meat and bones. Because Ochi was missing most of this barrier, he leaked fluids onto his bandages, as much as two liters per day. The missing epidermis had to be addressed in a more permanent fashion than bandages. As the team speculated on what to do, a dermatologist noted on the borders of where some skin remained that there were little specks of white. New growth. The team had not had a positive development since Uchi's sister's cells had taken root. They believed that this meant they could attempt to apply skin grafts to stimulate new skin growth. Uchi's sister yet again gave of her body so that her brother might live. A small 2 centimeter by 4 centimeter area of skin was removed from her thigh and sent to a lab for culturing. Meanwhile, Dr. Mayakawa reached out to universities that cultured skin, asking if they could contribute from their own reserves. They all did. All in all, 70 pieces of skin were grafted onto his body. Devastatingly, this attempt, like all the others, would be fruitless. The seepage of his body fluids simply made the areas too moist and the new skin could not properly fuse. Meanwhile, the diarrhea had not stopped. Each day, the medical team feared they would find blood in his stool, indicating his intestinal layer had deteriorated to the point of hemorrhage. Finally, on day 50 after the accident, it happened. An emergency endoscopy was performed. His intestines were in bad shape. They were red and inflamed, blood gushed, and the contractions persisted. But they did notice white spots. Examining them revealed that, like his skin, little areas of the mucosal layer had regenerated. Again, they felt a surge of hope. But was this a sign of Uchi's potential survival? or another brief but ultimately futile gaze into the strength of his inevitably dying body. They would quickly discover it was the latter, as the bleeding spread to his stomach the next day, despite the small amounts of new growth. As much as 10 liters of fluid and blood were lost from his intestines and replenished every day at this point. And with the stem cell transplant only being partially successful, Red blood cells, platelets, and certain white blood cells were not being replenished by his own system and had to be transfused into his body daily. He had as much as 10 transfusions within half a day. The team's only hope was to continue this until he could eventually produce all his own blood components. They had reached a stalemate. There was no tangible progress to be made. The focus simply was on keeping Uchi alive at all costs, hoping to wait out the progression for a medical miracle or for his own body to get over some hump where his cells would suddenly come back to life and rebuild him. Morale was low. Doctors and nurses began to question, only to themselves, what exactly was the point of this all? 
Uchi was no doubt suffering without relief. His skin was raw. He bled all over. He was unable to speak or eat. Whenever he could communicate, he confirmed he was in pain. His condition was only made remotely tolerable by constant doses of powerful painkillers and sedatives. And perhaps all of that could be worth it if survival or some quality of life could be found at the other end of it all. But no one had ever survived even far lower levels of radiation exposure. His death, if anyone was being honest with themselves, was inevitable. Were they making what could have been a swift and painful death a slow, prolonged, and unfathomably torturous one? Were they caring for this man? Or simply so focused on keeping him alive, winning against the blast of radiation that had essentially killed him 50 days ago, that they had forgotten about what was best for the patient? After all, some of the last words he spoke were those of him begging to be let go. That he did not want to be a guinea pig. That he was tired. And that was weeks ago. Was this mercy? Or had Uchi become some sort of scientific experiment? They all grappled with this, but dared not broach the subject with each other, and especially Dr. Mayakawa. The entire team was burnt out, especially him, and they feared there would be a total collapse if they uttered the unsaid. Many of them felt that it was their duty to do everything they could for the patient, meaning if they had the tools to keep his heart beating and his brainwaves functioning, then they had to. One doctor said to do otherwise would be playing God. But one could argue the opposite that trying to keep a man alive by piecing him together, platelets here, skin there, fluids here, and stem cells over there, when his body had already been dismantled at a chromosomal level, perhaps that was playing God. Ultimately, the doctors were faced with an unenviable dilemma. It was Dr. Mayakawa who would check in with the family every day, as hundreds of paper cranes filled the waiting room. Uchi's family had faith in Dr. Mayakawa, and they did want any and all life-saving attempts to be made. It's hard to know if they fully understood the prognosis, if they were blinded by denial as grieving families often are, or had the doctors focused so strongly on prolonging his life that it had given the family the impression that their loved one had even a slight chance of coming home. Whatever the reasons, they held on to hope that Ochi would find a way to survive this ordeal. So when Dr. Maikawa saw the despondency in the eyes of his team, though they did not say a word in protest, he insisted, Some of you may have doubts but I am asking you to do your best until the end. Don't think about it right now. Just think of treating Mr. Uchi. Let's continue the treatment. 
Uchi's family visited with him daily, even when he was covered all over with gauze except for the tips of his toes, even though he could no longer speak and was heavily sedated. When she saw him, his wife touched the tips of his feet and hands and gently encouraged him to hang on. His father quietly whispered his son's name and assured him he was there. Uchi's mother remained by his side. Over 50 days had passed since the terrible accident, most of them full of pain and suffering. The turn of the century was near, and they hoped aloud that he would make it to the year 2000. On day 59, Uchi stopped breathing. You will think this was the end, but it was not. When Dr. Mayakawa noticed Uchi had ceased respiration during his rounds, he shouted for the staff to administer epinephrine and called out for more doctors to come. Screw the lengthy sterilization protocols. All hands on deck, now. Dr. Mayakawa administered CPR as the staff scrambled. Uchi's heart started up again. Fifteen minutes later, it stopped. More epinephrine, more CPR. Nine minutes later, his heart resumed. Sixteen minutes later, another cardiac arrest. A new cocktail of drugs, more CPR. Twenty-four minutes later, his heart resumed pumping. Uchi had been under cardiac arrest for a total of 49 minutes. Some of the staff were grateful he had survived. His heart persisting was a sign that he wanted to live. Others wondered, what was the point of bringing him back? So he could suffer another day? It wasn't his body that fought to keep him here. It was the staff that had. His heart had let go multiple times. Despite his heart begging for the ultimate rest, their attempts dragged Uchi's body back to his hell on earth. The family's response was clear, however. They saw this incident as proof of his strength. They still believed he could get better. Hang in there, they whispered in his ear. Up until this point, though he could not speak, he responded to their words. But this time... Uchi did not respond, not a twitch of the finger or a shift of his facial muscles. The cardiac arrest had taken its toll, and things had taken yet another turn. His kidneys began to fail and he could no longer produce urine. His liver was failing too. Maikawa didn't know why the cardiac arrest had occurred. Uchi was plugged into all the right machines, being monitored around the clock, all the right medicines and fluids were being administered. Maikawa thought they should have been able to prevent such a thing. Perhaps they had it wrong. They saw Uchi's heart surviving the cardiac arrest as a sign he wanted to live, to continue to fight through the pain. But maybe the cardiac arrest itself was the sign. It was his time to go. Sixty-five days after being irradiated, 
brainwaves showed that while he was not completely brain dead, he no longer responded to external stimuli. His condition continued to worsen as his liver declined. His bodily fluids continued to seep, and the staff continued to replenish. Blood transfusions also continued. His blood pressure was only propped up by powerful drugs that were hard on his liver, causing a cruel downward spiral. His immune system began to attack his own blood, causing any gains they had maintained from the stem cell transplant to plummet. They didn't know why, but they were determined to try and fix it. They initiated a plasma exchange, in which they would filter out his plasma and replace it with donor plasma, in an effort to stop his immune system from continuing to attack its own blood. During the procedure, Uchi's blood pressure plummeted and he went into shock. They gave him epinephrine to recover from the shock, but had to abort the procedure. They then suspected he might have an infection and administered powerful antibiotics to fight it, then steroids to suppress his immune system from attacking itself. Shockingly, it didn't matter. His white blood cell count dropped from 10,000 per cubic millimeter to 1,000. Dr. Mayakawa flashed a light into Uchi's eyes to see if his pupils would respond. Another doctor noted there was no response, a sign that the brainstem was damaged and thus essential bodily functions unrecoverable. Dr. Mayakawa insisted he saw movement. Despite continually throwing every medical tool in their tool belt at Uchi, it was finally clear there was no life force behind him. He was a body being artificially animated by machines, IV fluids, transfusions, and an increasingly larger and more diverse cocktail of drugs. There was no future for Ochi. His body was killed the moment he saw that blue flash. He was a dead man walking as he joked with staff and visited with his family in the hospital. It's just that severe radiation exposure, while splitting up your atoms, also splits time, allowing its victim to be simultaneously dead and alive. Uchi's death would finally catch up with him. Dr. Maikawa and the team had simply been trying to do the impossible, go back in time. When that very first moment of man-made criticality occurred on December 2nd, 1942, underneath an abandoned football field at the University of Chicago, it was said we had given ourselves a godlike power, a power no man should have. Dr. Maikawa solemnly walked into the waiting room where the family waited. A man, not a god. He could not bring their husband, father, brother, son back from the dead, though he had tried his damned hardest. He explained everything. Then he finally suggested that they should not resuscitate the next time Ochi's heart stopped. The family agreed. It was as if they were waiting for permission to let him go. 
As they waited for death to revisit Uchi, the medical staff, with the agreement of his family, stopped increasing the dosages of the drugs that had kept his blood pressure up. Without blood circulating as powerfully, the drugs that fought infection could not circulate. Silvery mold began to grow in his moist body as a result. Uchi's wife had not seen his face since they had begun bandaging it. Knowing the end was near, the nurses decided they would remove them so she could have one last look at her husband. His family, who had held their emotions back for Uchi's sake, finally cried. They were grateful to see his face again. Uchi's son, who had not seen him since before the worst effects of the radiation had taken hold of his father, encouraged by his mother, said, Hang in there. About 30 minutes after the family's visit, Uchi's pulse went flat. A nurse ran in to administer epinephrine, but there was no response. His blood pressure took a steep drop. The doctors rushed to get his family by his side. Usually, there's time in the death process as blood pressure and pulse slow down to a halt. But by the time the family got to Uchi, he was already gone. 83 days after he had been irradiated. By the time of his death, his family had folded almost 10,000 paper cranes, which were left in the waiting room. They wanted to place just one in his room while he was alive, but the doctors had decided it was too risky. Uchi was not the only person to receive a lethal dose of radiation that day. Though his story is most famous due to the sheer amount of radiation he received, his colleague Masato Shinohara, who was pouring the uranium solution into the funnel held by Uchi, was exposed to less than half the amount of radiation as compared to Uchi. Even that was still a lethal dose. Shinohara's symptoms progressed more slowly as a result. Unlike Uchi, who had received his sister's stem cells, Shinohara could not find a match, so he received cord blood instead. Like Uchi, the transplant was only a partial success. Also like Uchi, most of his epidermal layer had disintegrated. But unlike his ill-fated colleague, his skin did take to skin grafts. When they healed, it formed a hard, inflexible shell. When he finally died from complications of his radiation poisoning, including pneumonia, 211 days after the accident, the doctor who performed the autopsy on Shinohara noted the crunching sound his skin made as he dissected his body. In the aftermath of the accident and death of its two employees, the chief of JCO and five of its employees were arrested. It was discovered that numerous safety calls were abandoned. First, the uranium solution used had an enrichment level of over 18%, when typically it should have been 5% or less. A special tower shaped to minimize the risk of criticality should have been used instead of a bucket to prepare the uranium fuel, but it was harder to clean, so they used a stainless steel bucket, a change in process that was not approved by any regulating body. 
the method of pouring uranium solution into the main tank was not according to protocol and was simply a shortcut. If there is any time not to use shortcuts, it would be while handling fissile materials. At the final stages of processing, the solution was to be subdivided and then processed. Instead, it was not divided in order to save time. These new methods were approved by the company in something called a shadow guide. The shadow guide did have some countermeasures to prevent criticality even with those changes, but eventually, those were ignored as well. Volume, enrichment, shape of containment, multiple changes had been made to the original protocol, leading to an unplanned criticality. Uchi and Shinohara were not properly trained and their relatives stated they did not seem to be accurately informed of the dangers of the job. That was Uchi's first time even working in that specific building. He was simply following his boss's orders step by step. That may explain Uchi's cheerful demeanor during the early days of his exposure. He simply had no idea of the true hazards of his job. The six employees, including Uchi's boss, who survived his exposure due to being farther away from the source of the criticality, were all sentenced to two to three years in prison for their long-term negligence. In the end, those who treated Ochi were left with conflicted feelings, having felt it was their duty to treat the man facing an inevitable, grueling death, but also wondering if they had done the right thing. Was Uchi's suffering prolonged just so that a government or a corporation could save face? Had they scrambled so desperately to try and claim victory over the undefeatable that they had lost sight of the patient himself? Or are humans, even those with the best of intentions, simply imperfect? Uchi's family refused to give up. It was Dr. Mayakawa who had to face them daily and proceed with their wishes. Did Dr. Mayakawa hope so desperately for Uchi's wife and little boy to have him back that he refused to see what was so plainly in front of him? So that even when Uchi's heart stopped over and over, he forced him back to life? Did unwavering hope blind Dr. Mayakawa? and the family to what seemed to be so obvious? That Ochi would die, no matter what they did. That we humans, try as we might, are not gods. That in the face of such power, capable of mass creation and destruction in a flash, hope would not be enough. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.